I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. That's the voice of my guest today, Colin Moulding, playing with his old band, XTC. Now, let me tell you a little bit about XTC and Colin Moulding. XTC was formed in Swindon in 1972, and they called it a day in 2006. The band had a rotating cast of members, but Colin Moulding and Andy Partridge were really the core members of XTC, along with Dave Gregory, who was with the band for about 20 years. Moulding and Partridge met where most musicians meet. No, not at a Pilates class, at a record store. They grabbed drummer Terry Chambers, and the rest is history. Now, when XTC started, they were playing glitter rock, they were playing punk, they were playing weird pop. They were a strange band, and their shows were even stranger. They were ironic, they were idiosyncratic, and they were kind of weird. No one knew how to categorize XTC. But it didn't matter because everything they did was awesome. You would say, what kind of music is that? And the other person would say, I don't know, but it's great. And that's what it was to like XTC. They were uncategorizable, but decidedly brilliant. And their early work, albums like White Music and Drums and Wires, were filled with tension and nerve. And they were gathering new fans by the day. The problem was most of those new fans would never get a chance to see XTC in the flesh because singer Andy Partridge had a kind of panic about playing live. And in 1982, he told his bandmates it didn't interest him anymore. He couldn't do it. He physically and emotionally couldn't get on a stage and play in front of people. So XTC became a studio band. If you saw them live in the early days, you were one of the lucky ones. Because their days of playing live were over. That being said, when you're a live band, you reach new people all the time. You're in different countries, you're in different cities, you're on different continents. And you recruit people to your weird tent of manic pop fun by performing in their city. But XTC weren't doing that, which makes it all the more remarkable that in the course of their career, they lodged 18 records in the UK Top 40. They had hits with songs like Making Plans for Nigel and Senses Working Overtime. And in the U.S., they crushed it with songs like Dear God, Mayor of Simpleton, and The Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead. They are one of the most beloved bands of the last 50 years. One thing connoisseurs of the band can never agree on is what is XTC's greatest album. Some say it's Black Sea. Some say it's English Settlement. Some go with Skylarking, some go with the Big Express. But one thing XTC fans can agree on is this is a band that made a lot of brilliant records. Now, Colin Moulding uh, is my guest, and Colin Moulding is an interesting guy because even though Andy Partridge gets the credit for being the main songwriter of the band, because he was, 
Colin Moulding is the guy that wrote the first three singles that charted for XTC. Those singles were Life Begins at the Hop, Making Plans for Nigel, and Generals and Majors. Colin Moulding is a really brilliant bass player and a really brilliant songwriter. He admits he's not as prolific as Mr. Partridge, but his songs are thoughtful, tuneful, and interesting. He reminds me a little bit of uh, Robin Hitchcock, Reckless Eric, and Martin Newell. Now, Colin Moulding, over the course of his career, uh, has worked with everyone from Sam Phillips to Todd Rundgren to Billy Sherwood. Right now, guess who he's working with again? No, not Andy Partridge. Terry Chambers, the original drummer for XTC. The two men have teamed up for a duo called TC and I, and their new EP is called Great Aspirations. I got a chance to sit down with Colin to talk about XTC, TC and I, and uh, ESP. Uh, We didn't talk about ESP. We talked about everything else, though. Enjoy this conversation with me and Colin Moulding right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I suppose the band split up in about 2006. Um, it, kind of, it kind of fizzled, really. And um, no big announcement that we were going to call it a day. It was just the kind of... Um, we just faded away, you know? <laughs> uh, so, and then kind of it takes a while to come to terms with that, you know? It's like you can't believe... You can't begin a new romance when you're still trying to get over the old one, you know? (laughs) So I think that for a couple of years, I just watched the TV, I think, and um, licked my wounds, you know, a bit of a divorce going on, I suppose. Um, And then slowly, um, I would get calls from this guy in America, um, um, who's uh, very into prog rock. Uh, he's a guy called Billy Sherwood, who now actually plays bass with Yes, the band Yes. Sure. Uh, prog rock outfit, you know. And um, he would say, oh, do you fancy playing on this? Or do you fancy singing on this? You know, most of it was kind of prog rock, really. I said, well, I'm not doing anything. So, and it was that that kind of slowly got me back into music, you know. And... Um, we did that for about five years. He'd ring up and say, oh, we wanted to play on this, or we wanted to sing on this, and uh, that's what I did for a good while, and then I started to... It got me back into composing myself, and um, a couple of years out of that, Terry turned up uh, from Australia. He'd been in Australia for 34 years. You might recall he left the band in 1982. Right. Uh, so, um, quite an eon ago, and... Um, he came back into the country because he was getting divorced and, and he had personal problems and he said he wanted to come back to England. So he came back and we went out for a drink and I said, well, look, I've got these few songs and I was going to do something with them. Did you fancy uh, coming in with me on it, you know? And um, he, he said, yeah, that'll be great. So um, that's what we did. We thought, well, let's, let's make an EP then or something. And uh, lo and behold, it, that's what it is. Were you and Terry in touch all those years? No, not really. No, he, he'd ring up and say, why haven't I been paid? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, it's coming, you know. Um, uh, but generally, not. no, not really. Um, you know, he had his life out there. And I guess it was kind of painful for him, really, you know, that, that he, he'd kind of jacked the band in a bit and, and kind of... 
Well, he was been working in the construction industry in Australia for over 30 years, you know. Uh, so he, he sort of um, hung up his cement mixer and uh, and took up with the drums again, you know. Or maybe there was no difference, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, yeah, so it was all a bit weird, really. And then, you know, we got working on this record and uh, got into it and he'd turn up on my doorstep at nine o'clock every morning and say, all right, I'm ready. And um, we'd set some mics up and start recording, you know. Um, yeah, it was all very Joe Meek, really, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> saxophone saxophone players in the kitchen and all this kind of thing, you know. But uh, yeah, it seemed to have worked out all right. What was your relationship with Terry when you guys were in the band? Were you guys pretty close? I guess so. Um, when the band formed in oh in the early seventies, um, I was the sort of go between really because I knew Andy, and um, you know we were kicking around a bit, and then I knew Terry and we were kicking around a bit. So I was the go between 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 us, you know, and uh, the two factions got together through me, I suppose. And then we had the, the elusive fourth member for quite some time, but uh, the, the nucleus of the band was Andy, myself, and Terry, you know. Yeah, so we were kicking around quite a bit early in the early days, yeah. It's interesting because you guys got back together and you both had been through losses. I mean, you with the band, him with his marriage and his, his um, career in construction was over. So the timing was actually kind of perfect. Yeah, yeah, you could say that, I suppose. It was kind of uh, from the ashes, the phoenix rises out, you know. Right. And um, it just seemed kind of, it was time, you know. But he's, um, see, we were born in the same year and we were born in the same town uh, within a mile of each other. And there's a lot of synchronicity there, I think. And, uh, you know, uh, he was, our birthdays are not too far off from each other, so it was kind of, you know, perhaps it was meant to be. When you guys started playing together again, did you lock in immediately, or did it take a little while, or did you feel like, oh, this is perfect? Um, no, he was a bit rusty, I think. I have not played for 30 years, you know. His son plays drums, you see, so he was, he was getting his rocks off through him, I think, and uh, he has a band. Um, but um, he was, he, yeah, we started rehearsing and slowly but surely it all came back, you know. But, you know, when you have that sort of layoff, you, you, you're not going to be fantastic straight away, you know. When you got these songs together, uh, what was the common thread that you, that you felt in these particular four that you chose for the EP? I think, to be truthful... Well, to be truthful, I suppose, and um, see, I think one of the things certainly about some of the XTC records is that um, although they can be admired for their playing and all the rest of it, um, sometimes uh, they don't connect, I think. Uh, the feeling doesn't come over, you know. Uh, not in all of them. Some of them do, obviously, but a lot of them, I think. Um, and I connect with the heart, you know. And I think that was my that was my watchword. It was to connect with the heart, really, this time, and uh, try and get the feeling over, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was the 
the wanting to connect, really. Do you mean that some of the XTC albums are thematically choppy, or do you mean that sonically? Um, <clears throat> well, musically and lyrically, you know. Sometimes the marriage between the two is not always a good one. I mean, I think you can admire the playing. Uh, the playing was always quite competent, but sometimes um, it's not about that, you know. You can have a very simplistic song and and it let it really connect, you know. I mean, um, that's the $64,000 question is, how right. do you connect with people, you know? And um, I wanted, hopefully, the songs I'd written, just the few that I'd written, really did connect, and I think they did, you know. Well, it seems to have got some good reaction, anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, are you, are you surprised of the enduring quality of that work? Of the XTC work? Yeah. Or, or of the new record? Uh, how about both? Well, we don't know about the new stuff yet, but <laughs> in terms of enduring, but um, the stuff, yeah. that, you know. Well, I'm overwhelmed about the, the reaction to the new record. You know, we hadn't kind of foreseen that it would... Um, be received the way that it has. And in regard to the XTC records, well, um, that's been a slow burn, you know. I mean, we've been do we we were together as a band over thirty years recording, you know. Um, actually, less than that, about twenty five years recording, but together as a band for thirty, um, and that's a long time. And uh, it's taken a long time to kind of. Um, for our legacy to build up, I think. Um, but I think generally we're liked by musicians and um, people in the know rather than the general public, you know. And uh, the general public only gauge by their hearts whether it moves them or not. Whereas musicians, they they tend to kind of think, oh, that's a great riff or something. And, uh, you know, they're more, they analyze the actual composite of the of the tune and stuff rather than kind of does it move them you know and um that's what i wanted to do this time round is is for people to be genuinely moved you know um and admire the playing if they wish but you know it wasn't the it wasn't the main thrust you know how was it for you um coming back and being the front man and stepping out and and not having anybody else there sharing that duty. Um, did you like stepping into that role? Were you nervous about doing that, or did it come pretty naturally? No, I'm fairly reticent about um, about stepping into maybe Andy's shoes or something. <laughs> I mean, uh, that was the thing about uh, my work with XTC, is that uh, I didn't have the responsibilities that Andy had being the front guy. I could kind of retreat into the shadows, you know, having, uh, you know, maybe write one or two singles and then retire uh, behind the rest of them, you know. It was, it was, it, it was kind of, um, it suited my personality, I think, uh, to do that. And, um, to begin with, I think Andy was pretty reticent about anybody else writing at all, you know. And so when when I had some hits in the early days, it was, I think he, um, it quite kind of shocked him, really. 
but that's that's my makeup. I prefer to kind of dip in and out of the limelight, you know. Yeah, because I, it's funny. I I've listened to you guys, you know, since the early '80s when I was a young man, and um, I always understood the position of why you know why the live stuff stopped. But I never really thought about it from anybody else's perspective. And I, and now that I'm that I'm looking at this new work that you're doing, and I'm thinking, you seem like a guy who really enjoys playing live. And I feel that that wasn't something you got to do really. And so this must be really nice for you. Are, are there live gigs planned? We may well do some shows. We haven't made up our mind yet. We're still in the uh, in the throes of promoting this one, really. But. Um... We've got to remember there's only the two of us and getting players, you know, logistics, the logistics of getting pl other players to play with you is is not always easy, you know. And um, and will you get along with them? You know, that's what you've got to ask yourself. So I think um, if we get the players and they come, you know, and they come forward and we get on and it seems like uh, it's a goer, then we probably will do some shows, you know. But I don't anticipate to do the, the long tours that we used to, you know. Um, and you've got to remember that we, we're not financed by a record company. It has to be self-financed. So, you know, that's another consideration, yeah. But um, you see, back in the old days, um, when touring stopped and Andy got uh, his stage fright or his illness or whatever, um, for Terry, I think you could understand him leaving because a big part of the setup for him was the fact that he was touring, you know, and uh, that was a big, big part of it for him, you know. And um, so, um, and he got married at the time, and you know, there was a lot of things going on in his personal life, so you could understand why he jumped ship um, when we came off the road, you know. And I think Dave always. That was, I mean, Dave was a single guy as well, and still is, and you know that was a kind of a big part of it for him, really. It's like being uh, in a band of pirates, you know. Right. <laughs> Whereas Andy and myself, we were old married, old farts, and um, with kids, and that's not easy, you know. And the road can be wearying. So I mean, maybe um, I mean, though it would have been fun to have seen like a skylarking tour. I mean, that would have been great. But at the same time, maybe it preserved you, and maybe in many ways it ends up, um, you know, saving you a lot of miles um, in your life. Yeah, I think so. And also, if you're in the limelight all the time, the public can get awfully tired of you, you know? And, I mean, there are bands who tour incessantly, you know, and uh, and I think we've, we've kind of managed to keep things going because we've, we've not been at the forefront all the time, you know? And a lot of people think when we have a hit, they think, oh, my God, are they still going? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, we're able to do, we're able to sustain that because we're not, we've always been, you know, in and out of the shadows, you know. I, mean, I, I really appreciate the fact that you're willing to talk about XTC, but ultimately, if anybody wants to know uh, how you feel about it or what happened, they just have to listen to Comrades and Pop. I think it sums it up pretty well um in terms of what happened and uh that's you know that's some people were saying it's a cautionary tale i think in many ways it's like a eulogy uh unless i'm misreading it 
Um, yeah, yeah, you might be right there. You might be right with the eulogy thing, yeah. Um, well, basically, if I could explain myself, I um, a lot of people thought it, it was about the breakup with Andy and all the rest of it, but it wasn't really. I, um, I wanted to say something um, about... I wanted to pass the baton on to all the young pop people coming into the industry, I think, and 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 give them sort of cautionary advice and say, look, this is generally what happens. Bands tend to fall out, and but what you mustn't do is to get tangled up with the money men who are going to make mincemeat out of you if you get involved with them, you know? And um, so you've got to go careful. <laughs> uh, but that was, that, that's, it was kind of nice because I'm heading towards the end of my career and it was like kind of a passing the baton on to the youngsters, you know. Um, it's uh, it's a thing that, you know, when you get on in years, you think about, you know. It's the guy that writes the hits that gets the money in this funny old world of pop. The bassist and the drummer might be lucky, but never seem to get a lot. You start out high school buddies and swear allegiance for all time. But when the checks come rolling in, it's cash or I resign. But the duffest tune a band can play, and even the nightingale's despair, is the sound of a lawyer's doorbell that rings in Barclay Square. Ring out. for all time Comrades of pop turn away In love and war all is fair A far worse fate awaits you On carpets made from human hair Is self-referential in that you name check the bass player and the drummer, right? So there is someone could definitely interpret that as, um, you know, talking, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It had not gone unnoticed, as they say. <laughs> um, yeah, um, generally there's arguments about money, and uh, it's generally the songwriter who who trousers most of it, and uh, you know, you don't know these things when you come into the industry. You think you just plug into the wall and it all sounds fantastic and we, and we all make a fortune, you know. Um, 
And the general public doesn't know. They don't know about that the songwriter gets most of the money. They suspect, but they don't know. And, um, you know, I tell them, you know, <laughs> this is generally what it's about. But it's, it's, it's a general thing, you know, and it's a tongue-in-cheek thing as well, you know. Um, bands split up, you know, that's what they do after a while. They have a fallout, you know. And, um, but, you know, you go say, well, say la vie, and that's, you know, don't get too, don't let it, don't break your heart over it. You know, I know maybe you don't come out with it too well financially, but, you know, what you mustn't do is to get involved with lawyers because they're not necessarily on your side, especially if there's a paymaster in the wings like a record company who who will keep paying the legal bills, you know, as what happened to us with our ex-manager. It's um, so what, that's what you mustn't do, you know. Is there yeah. a better is there a better way for bands to do it, do you think? Um, probably not. It probably isn't because bands can't think about the money. Uh, they've got to think about their art and their playing and, and, uh, all those kind of things that, that are more important. Um, and therefore they get people in who, you know, it's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a hodgepodge of, of a thing to do is to get somebody in who maybe you half know and don't really know fully. And it's great if they're in the family and you can trust them. And, you know, that was, um, that was the thing about the Copeland brothers with the police and people like that. They had Miles Copeland, who was the, the brother of the drummer, you right. know, and <laughs> as far as we know, the relationship went quite well, you know. But you don't always get that facility, and it's usually somebody who you don't know, and um, you know it doesn't always work out. Yeah, it's a it's a tough it's a tough setup, just the way that the way that whole thing is built. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because um, when bands, I mean, bands have day jobs to start with, and they just want to pack in their day jobs and be a professional musician. That's their dream, you know. And uh, they're prepared to overlook lots and lots of stuff in order to achieve that. And it's not until you were in the industry a couple of years you think, oh, what's going wrong with the money? We don't seem to be making anything. And yet this this guy has just bought a Ferrari, you know. Um, it's, uh, you, but you, you know, that's, that's your mindset when you're kind of, when you're in your early 20s and you're just starting out in the industry. You, you, um, you just want to be somebody, you know. There's a certain sadness too, I think, in the song because you know you mentioned high school several times, where you know that was the time where things were probably the purest and the intentions were the most um, honorable. And then things get muddy as you get older and as you get more successful, um, which seems almost unavoidable, actually. Yeah, that's exactly right, Alex. Very. That's. Um... Yes, it's it's a wonderful thing, uh, youthful innocence. And when you're in it, when there's the gang of you, you know, um, you have a certain banter that you start out with because you all come from the same town and you all share the same in-jokes. And that's, that's kind of wonderful, you know. Um, what happens? <laughs> um, you're, you're 
battered by the industry, I think, and uh, you become a bit more self-centered, I think. Um, you know, I well remember when we did our first recording at Abbey Road. It was like, uh, my God, we're going into the Beatles studio. This is incredible for our first recording, for our first EP. And um, I remember we all got into the foyer of the of the Abbey Road studios and we were... We were playing this joke whereby we would say street names from our hometown just to say, that name has never been said in this room. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you play little games like that as a band, you know, and, and that's marvellous. And um, where does all that go? I don't know. But, uh, that's what the industry does to you, you see. Yeah, it's a, it's a machine, and and that to me is by the end of the song, and it, it's a tidy little song. It's not even three minutes. Uh, it's it's quite. I find that part quite sad um, because you you lose that innocence and you lose that the purity of those friendships. Yeah, we more or less cut it to a sort of brass like fanfare, you know, like a march, you know, and there you are, warriors in this world, the, the four of you, you know. Uh, that's why it had to be a march. It's like a military thing, you know. Um, comrades together, you know. Um, so the the two sentiments seemed quite, you know, the the music seemed quite apt for for the words to talk over the top, you know. Uh, and that's what I was looking for. Um, a good marriage, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, in all, well in all the songs, really, you know. But yeah, it's. Um, yeah, it's tinged with sadness and a little bit of humour there as well. It's slightly tongue-in-cheek as well, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I think uh, getting the mood right is kind of difficult sometimes, but I think I think it's okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. It reminds me of uh, Paint a Vulgar Picture by the Smiths on uh, Strange Ways Here We Come, which is also a kind of post-mortem uh, while the band was still active, barely. Uh, but it was sort of like a post-mortem of what the music business can do to... I don't know if you know that song, but... Um, no, I don't know that song. I'm not too familiar with the Smiths material, but um, yeah, I think Morrissey was quite a good lyricist by all accounts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, seems like a, a difficult character to be in a band with, but but yes, very <laughs> very talented. Uh, Absolutely. I think Johnny Marr wants a, a medal, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right I've heard that he's very very narcissistic and uh, um, well I won't go there but yeah no I, I get it band relationships are difficult aren't they? they they seem to be as challenging as romantic ones Colin they are and also when somebody leaves the dynamic of the band can change and you get people uh, I mean I, I think that's what happened to me in the early days when Barry left we made a couple of records with a keyboard player called Barry Andrews and um, when he left, it kind of changed my writing style. I don't know why. It just seemed to have an effect, you know. Um, and I was writing more melodically and stuff, but a lot of people don't know that, that the um, the dynamic in a band can change with, with with the personnel that leaves and all the personnel that comes into the band, you know. It can have an effect on the members already in the band, you know. You know, Bill Berry left R.E.M. and they were never the same band. Um and, and, and well, that was the drummer, wasn't it? Right. He wanted to bow out, didn't he? Yeah. Well, yeah. he had an illness or something. You know, something to do with, um, oh, I think it was uh, some sort of um, head thing. Wasn't yeah. It? yeah, it was an aneurysm. And he, and he kind of thought it was smarter to preserve himself and raise a family. So he, he bowed out. 
but the band never was the same, both lyrically and musically. Uh, without Good Lord, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I quite believe that. It can have an effect subconsciously on the rest of the band, you know. Um, my God, yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, I suppose for a lot of REM fans, that was the case. What about Terry? When Terry left XTC, did you feel that same shift? Yeah, I think so. It didn't have... It didn't have... Yeah... You know, I've never thought about that, but um, quite possibly it did. Um, for the two albums after Terry left, we um, used the guy from the Glitter Band. You know, you don't know Gary Glitter in America. Sure, sure. He was he, he was um, kind of glam rock kind of guy from the early seventies in England. He had a few hits over here and. Um, and we got the drum. They had, they had two drummers. Um, one of the drummers was this guy called Pete Phipps, who actually drummed on the two albums after Terry left. You know, and um, he had a very jazzy style, which was um, which was quite different. And um, he was a very different drummer to Terry. So it's kind of, in a way, I kind of had to readjust. You know, as uh, if we weren't if we weren't on the road, then there was a little point in bringing in a permanent drummer on the payroll, you know, because what's the point? Um, you, we used a succession of drummers, you know. So I guess it must have had some sort of bearing on my writing or whatever. But um, sometimes these things happen subconsciously and you, you're not aware of them until you analyze yourself, you know. What, um, how would you describe Terry as a drummer? Uh, pretty meat and potatoes, I think. He's got um, the thing I find most thrilling about Terry's drumming is his bursts of violence. <laughs> <laughs> He's, <laughs> some of his fills they burst out with violence. If you listen to Scatter Me and some of the fills in that, they're kind of simple, but they're kind of. I can imagine lots of drummers trying to think. Oh, miming, you know, they're like air guitar with guitars. They would they mess about with sticks or something and, and trying to trying to uh, mime to those fills, you know, because uh, the, he's um, yeah, it's the only way I can describe it. Really, he's got sort of moments of violence which kind of burst out, and they're quite thrilling, you know. That's what made him quite physical. When we used to play live, he'd be up on the on this rostrum at the back with the drum kit and, he, and a lot of people have mentioned that he's such a physical drummer that it, it was quite thrilling to watch. I suppose more in a kind of a Keith Moon kind of way, you know? Uh, so, um, yeah, he's... Um, every, all drummers are different, aren't they? But, uh, yeah, that, that, that's the striking thing about him, it, to my, to my uh, opinions, anyway. I've always thought of him as being a muscular drummer so it's no surprise he was in construction he's a he is a, a kind of a muscly guy in terms of the way he hits um yes yeah, definitely well i think his uh i think his hero was always john bonham from led zeppelin i think um we were all big zeppelin fans in the early days and i think um him and probably simon kirk from free yeah um yeah but yeah i know what you mean kind of muscly muscly kind of animalistic kind of way of attacking the drum kit, you know? Yeah. 
yeah, I like those records with him on. I, I like that sound. He, um, yeah, he's, he's, I like him as a drummer quite a bit. Um, what about you as a bass player? How would you self-describe yourself? Uh, who are my heroes? Um, well, McCartney, obviously. Um, big McCartney fan. And also, um, I, I, the whole of the band liked a band called Free. Are you familiar with Free? Sure, absolutely. All Right, all right Now yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, we always liked the bass player. I, in particular, liked the bass player, a guy called Andy Frazier. Uh, I think he died. He lived in America for a good few years. I think he died uh, last year or the year before. But um, we always liked Free because they were... Um, they were only well. There was a kind of a three, kind of a three piece or four piece, but they had a singer, so it was just three instruments at any one time. The singer Paul Rogers, I think he played piano occasionally, but we always thought, well, they made the most of the three instruments that they had, and they left holes. You know, it was no kind of blatant kind of block chords. It was kind of you, there was holes in the music. You know. Um, and we all thought that was primarily down to the bass playing. And um, we used to kind of, you know, sometimes if you listen to All Right Now, I don't think anybody plays in the first verse at all. I think it's just guitar. And then he comes in and, you know, comes in and um, plays on the chorus and stuff. But And then he'd drop out again, you know. And uh, that kind of thing is kind of a bit more thrilling than somebody who just plays all the way through, uh, you know, with kind of power chords or something. I think um, he was quite a big influence on me, I think. How is McCartney as a bass player? He he seems, I'm not a musician, but he seems fairly phenomenal to me. Um, if you Well, if you're a big fan of the Beatles and you explore a lot of their albums like Revolver and Sgt. Pepper and that, you, you realize he was a bit cheeky, you know? A lot of people don't know that. Um, you know, uh, he would play these lines. You think, oh, I wouldn't wouldn't have thought you'd have played a line like that there. But it <laughs> works, you know. Obviously, it's instinctive. Um, and that's good. You, you're not going by the book, you know. It's um, He was quite surprising sometimes if you listen to some of the stuff, you know. Of course, everybody knows those records inside out. So they kind of think, well, yes, I've heard that, and that's the way that goes. But if you come in cold on something and you're rehearsing something like that, that's not something a musician would do, you know, sometimes, the lines that he played. And, um, you know, of course, we, we accept them now because they're part of the tapestry of the music, and we, we've heard them so many times, you know. But um, he could be quite cheeky, I think. Have you heard any any young bass players that are playing in, in newer bands that you were kind of knocked out by? Um, no, not really. I couldn't name anybody. But then I, I, I'm a bit of an old fart, I suppose. I, I don't much listen to, to new music. Um, so I, I fall short of the mark, I think, on that one. Uh, is there anybody I should listen to? Good God! Now you, I put you on the spot. Now you put me on the spot, and I and I got nothing. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, maybe I, you're an old fart as well. I, I I think that's probably very true. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, I was telling a friend of mine I was going to talk to you, and I said 
I said, Colm is kind of like the McCartney and the Harrison in XTC, whereas, you know, and Andy was, was the Lennon, and, and that's how I sort of saw it. It's remarkable that, yeah. um, that, is that, is that a fair thing to say? Oh, dare we compare ourselves with the Beatles, <laughs> I, think we're, I think we're on a different stage, don't you? Um, you know, I don't think I would like to do that. Um, I don't know. Every makeup band is different, you know. And Lennon and McCartney wrote together. I mean, Andy and myself never did that, you know. It was always pretty separate affairs, you know. Um, but he'd, he'd obviously think up lines on my, his, on my songs and I'd think up lines for his. But in terms of actually being in the same room and writing, I think in the early days the Beatles did that. And they certainly kept their credits of Lennon and McCartney um, intact right the way through their career. Although we know for a fact that, you know, Lennon and McCartney never wrote together later on, you know. Right. Um, but, yeah, I, I, we never wrote together, Andy and myself, you know. Is that because he was a, a tough guy to collaborate with or because he was so specific with, with what he was doing? Well, I think the songs are personal, you know. It's very difficult when the songs are personal and you you, you have your instrument that you play and you, you play it and... Uh, you know, in the early days of the Beatles, they kind of, um, they got around a table and it became very impersonal and you you kind of uh, chip stuff in. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know, I'm sounding like I was I was actually in the room, but I wasn't actually. <laughs> but um, when you're emotionally involved with something, that's very difficult to collaborate, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, and um, I always found that difficult to do. Uh, if there was a particular song that was kind of very personal, you know. Um, I don't know. Maybe he wanted all the royalties to himself. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly did. <laughs> sure, sure. I, mean, yeah. I always think about, you know, like what the retirement plan is. You know, I look at some of my favorite bands. You know, I'm, I'm 47, and I look at, I, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen, XTC. These are bands that I grew up uh, adoring. And so... Um, but I always wonder, you know, for Led Zeppelin, the retirement plan is Led Zeppelin. It, you know, that that seemed to pay well. Uh, I never thought about the idea of, you know, why are Echo and the Bunnymen still on the road? Well, because I, you know, there's money to be made, especially with the way music is now distributed and, and purchased. Um, so it, I, I know what you mean. Like it's not wrong to say I wanted the royalties because that's how you take care of yourself, right? Well, you've got. I mean, some bands from the early days. You got to. Some bands actually didn't make any money from those early days uh, because maybe they, they had uh, bad management who who ripped them off, or maybe the deal with the record company was not that good. So now they find themselves in a situation where they're not earning too much money from those days, from those songs, and they have to go out on the road in order to earn a living. I mean, I watched this. Um, I saw this Blondie documentary the other day, you know, and um, they'd had troubles with management who had a piece, a, a real big piece of their publishing. Um, I'm talking about Debbie and Chris, I suppose. Right. And um, they, um, you know, they didn't, they're not making much money from that. That's still a legacy from way back. So they got the band back together these last few years and then, they're making some decent money because they're doing tours, but you know that 
they're getting on in years, so how far does that go? But, uh, you know, a lot of us don't always come out with what people think we've come out with, you know? Um, so um, that's another thing to, um, you know, on the face of it, we had trouble with management, but, you know, we were able to ride the storm and come out the other side and things are not too bad, you know? But, I mean, I, I, I look at some of the some of the bargain bins where you see, say, a Blondie CD for three quid. And you think, Christ, what are the band getting out of that? You know. And um, <clears throat> so the fact that Andy has taken upon himself to actually release the old material in 5.1, it's probably saved us from the bargain bins, you know. Right. So you have to do all you can in order to survive and to stay to stay a musician. You know, you, you just got to do what you can. Were you uh, reluctant to uh, be a part of the documentary, or were you were you on board from the beginning? Because it, it looks fascinating. I have not seen it, um, but we uh, we did air, do a story about the trailer, and the story we wrote about the trailer got thousands of of, of readers. So there is a huge interest in that. Where were you when you were approached for that? Were you were you on board from the beginning? I was. I was on board from the beginning, but it, you know the the actual story. Um, in the documentaries told through Andy's eyes, really. Um, and he is virtually the narrator of the, um, of the, of the documentary. And, and um, Dave and myself, Terry and other people are kind of just talking heads, you know. Um, but that's okay, because you have to have a central figure. You're telling a story, you know. It's, it's entertainment, you know. So you have, you have to Nobody wants to know who, you know, my background when I was a baby, you know. Um, I think it's a, it's a, you have to tell a story in a certain way to actually, for it to come over, you know. I'm not saying you should bend the truth, I'm just saying you should concentrate on certain things, you know. Uh, stick to the, to the bones of the story, I think. So, Yeah. Yes, of course, I was in it from the start, yeah, of course. And and the, much has been made about the, the release of the EP is around the same time as the release of the of the documentary. Is that on purpose, or is that just a total happenstance? That is purely coincidental, purely coincidental. In fact, when we were... When the film crew came arrived at my house to film for the documentary, um, Terry had only just come back into the country. And... Um, you know, they filmed him a week after he'd stepped off the plane from Australia, and he'd never he he hadn't done an interview in thirty years. And I think they had to reshoot some of the stuff because I don't think he knew how to react. You know, it was uh, I mean, people might say that was a good thing, but I think he felt confused by it all. You know, because he'd never done he'd never had the limelight thrust in his face uh, for for so many years, you know. And um, I said to the the guy who was directing it, and I said, well, Terry and I are thinking about doing an EP, you know, because he'd just come back into the country, and I popped the question to him, and uh, I, just, I just think he said, well, that would be nice, you know. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> um, purely coincidental, you know, the, the fact that it's... Uh, came out in America in January and um, 
more or less so did we. You know, so uh, yeah, purely coincidental. What was it? What was it like to shoot uh, the video for Scatter Me? Um, what was it like to be in front of the camera again? How did you like that? Um, well, I'd been invited to to make videos with Billy's um, projects. Uh, we did a song called um, "The Man Who Died Two Times" by this band called uh, Station. Uh, oh God, what's in there? Something to do with stations. Um, days between stations and um, Billy produced the record and he wanted me to appear in the video so I had some I had a little bit of that recent stuff with videos anyway um, and then we did um, we did Scatter Me um, so this woman comes around your house and films you lip syncing and lo and behold She's, a month later, she sends you the finished product, you know. <laughs> uh, so I kind of um, I pretty much left it to her, you know. Uh, but she's included footage from, you know, archive footage of families dancing and stuff like that, just to make it, you know, a little bit of life there, you know, a little bit of normal life. Um, and then with the sentiment of the song, people appreciate that, I think, you know. I think we could have done a straight lip sync, probably, but I think it's a bit more interesting when you hone in on the feelings that the, that the song is giving you, and you try and you try and ride along with that, you know. Um, so yeah, I just left it there, and I think she did a pretty good job. It was a very nice job. It's a it's a cool video. Um, I, I was curious, what are the what are your vaults like? Do you have a lot of songs that you've written um, that are sort of just looking for a home in terms of? Um, you know what you're going to do with this project with Terry. Do you have uh, quite a bit of material that you've that you've sort of stockpiled over the years? No, nothing. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> nothing. The, the the cellar is empty. You know, the wine has been drunk. <laughs> um, we, um, uh, in fact, even for the EP, uh, uh, Scatter Me was an afterthought. Really, we had the other three tracks, and um, I said I had this other track called Hope is my finest virtue. This was this other track. And we played, we kicked it around a bit, and we thought, mm, this isn't, this is okay, but it's, we want something stronger, you know. And um, so um, back in May of last year, I uh, was a witch from the holiday, and uh, got messing around with the keyboard and some chords, and then Scatter Me popped out. And then it rapidly jumped to the top of the tree, you know. Um, people say, oh, I think that's the best one, you know, so I don't want God. Oh. And um, so I said, oh, we've got to make a video for this one then and uh, drop the idea of making a video for something else, you know. So that tends to happen, you know. Uh, so I think uh, the faults are pretty much clear, really. I don't think we're going to be doing much with Hope is My Finest Virtue because when things have kind of been rejected once, you, you really don't go back on it, you know. You think, well, it can't be that strong anyway. So, well, you know, the previous ideas that you've touched upon, if they don't come to the fore straight away, then you think, well, maybe they're not so good anyway. I've got loads of those sort of ideas, but I don't want to go there, you know. Well, the fact that you don't have uh, excess in in the vaults makes me think you're a very efficient songwriter. <laughs> you're too kind, Alex. You're too kind. Um, Non-prolific, I think others would call it. Uh, but um, <laughs> I have, well, um, 
I don't want to. I mean, maybe we could have made an album, but I I don't want to. Um, people think, well, there's some good tracks on it, and but most of it is not up to scratch. You know, I I sooner just do four tracks that were pretty good, I think, and uh, <coughs> and go away and write some more. You know, um, I think we made a little bit of that mistake when we finished up with XTC. Is that we did two albums in quick succession. Uh, from the same pool of writing, which I don't think is particularly a good idea sometimes. Um, the, tr- the problem with that was there was the orchestral orchestral songs and there was out-and-out rock songs, you know. And um, perhaps we should have tried to have just chosen the best songs and just made one album, but, you know, that's uh, that's another story. Are you... Are you at peace with the idea that you and Andy, your relationship is very administrative, <laughs> for lack of a better better way of putting it? It's become more uh, administrative than than anything else. Is that have you made peace with that? I think we've both accepted it, really. And um, you know, there has been bad feeling go under the bridge, and um, you know, sometimes you can't take that back, you know. Um, we talk, you know, by, on the email, but I haven't seen him in years, you know, it has to be said. Not that we saw too much of each other anyway, uh, other than the times we made records, you know. We never really kind of socialized. Uh, you know, a lot of people think, you know, when you're in a band, you you all live in one house, like the monkeys or something, you know. Right. Um, and... Um, but that was never the case. You know, we had families and kids and stuff. And so, yeah, it was kind of different entities, you know, different, two separate. Um, well, in fact, all of us kept pretty ourselves pretty separate, I suppose. You know, we had, uh, we had lives, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, it's become more of a kind of a an administration process for the, for the band, really. Um, but, you know, that's the way it goes. Can you still um, get distance enough where you can appreciate his genius as a as a songwriter? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. I have every respect for his talent, you know. But sometimes you just don't get along, you know. That's uh, And as the years go on, the little things mean too much, you know. Uh, you think, well, why does he pick his nose like that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's irritating <laughs> you know what I mean I um, being in the vicinity of somebody for so long when you make a record and, and some of the records we made were 10 months long you know um, so yeah that kind of gets a bit difficult yeah but um, oh god yes I've every respect for his talent yeah absolutely yeah and I've learned a lot from him you know so uh, yeah that's uh, that's a completely different side of it did your children ever want to go into music? My boy actually plays drums, and he's been in lots of bands and stuff, and still still plays in a band now. And don't ask me the name because they're usually dissolved before I even when they think up a new one, you know. So, <laughs> so I I don't know which one he's on now, you know. But yes, oh God, yes, yes, he's very good, yeah. But it's it's kind of earning a living at it now is different to how it used to be. Um, years ago, they used to they used to give you a second chance. You know, they don't do that now, you know. 
unless you if you make one album and it's not successful then you're usually out the door you know they gave you a second chance years ago they call it artist development you know but that doesn't exist anymore you know it's unfortunate i know it's it seems the attention span has has grown shorter oh absolutely yes you've got to be an overnight success otherwise you know they don't come back to you you know no um I mean, there was always, I mean, people pursued the hits years ago, of course they did, but um, we were lucky that we signed a six-album deal all those years ago, and that sixth album became ten albums, you know, and I mean, it, it does get hairy in places when the hits are not coming, and we, we had some wilderness years, perhaps around 19, year, well, 84, 85, that was probably our low point. Uh, made a couple of albums that didn't do all that well, you know, and then suddenly your fortunes changed and change and you you rise up again, you know. So, yeah, it's uh, but they used to stick with you a lot more than what they do now, definitely. If you had to choose a favorite XTC record, what what would you pick? Um, probably Skylarkin for consistency, I think. Um, yes, probably Skylarkin, I think, would, would be the best for me. And um, I'm not sure whether it's the biggest seller. I think uh, Oranges and Lemons probably... I think Skylarkin did the donkey work with Dear God and stuff. Uh, and then the subsequent album after that sold more because the work had been done, you know. Uh, but um, I think Skylarkin's On Balance is probably... Our best record. Yeah, it's it's my favorite as well. Front to back, I think uh, the <clears> most <throat> most cohesive. I, I love it. Well, that was Todd. You've got to thank Todd Rundgren for that. You see, because <laughs> it was his idea to put those songs on in the main. You know, he had his um, uh, he had his day passes kind of thing. That's what he wanted to call a record. He wanted to call it day passes, which we didn't think much of, but we took his point that it was. The record should be a concept of the passing of a day, you know. Uh, so the, the choices that he he made, to, the songs he wanted to record, that's what we recorded. He chose them, you know. It's remarkable, really. You know, it's funny. I got that record when I was in high school, and it was spring, <clears throat> spring here in California, and it was getting really hot. So every subsequent spring, when it starts to get hot here, I reach for Skylarking almost subconsciously. It's a it's a album that feels like weather to me, like warm weather. Yes, well, the the, the beginning is certainly very sunny, and um, it it gets pretty dark at the end. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it does get dark. Yes, <laughs> In, indeed. Yeah. How much did you love that guy? Colin Moulding. Wow. What a fun chat that was. Uh, boy, Skylarking does get dark in the end. That is an understatement. It goes, uh, it goes into, the, into the part of the soul uh, where it's always night. <laughs> Some dark business. 
uh, but a beautiful record. Hey, thank you for listening to Stereo Members, the podcast. I am Alex Green. This is Bombshell Radio. And if you're interested in our programming here at the radio station, all you got to do is go to bombshellradio.com and check out what we got for you because we got some good stuff. We're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are always on the air. All right. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next week right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.